0: The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. I invite you to take your Bibles again the Book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 49. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Classes can go out with whoever's leading the classes this morning. My apologies. Acts chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 49 all the way down to chapter 14 and verse 20. And just while you're finding your place, just to remind you, there is an evening service tonight. And I uh, strongly encourage you all to come on out. Uh, Marcel, Unica and... I think is how you say his name. Uh, He is uh, a Romanian brother, good friend of Edward and Jess. He came here a few months ago to give us a presentation on uh, Voices of the Martyrs. And uh, we could tell right away as he began to speak, he had a tremendous ability to preach. And so I met up with him. We had a good time of fellowship and I invited him to come back and bring us a message from God's word. So tonight at 6 p.m., till 7 p.m. There is an evening service, and I encourage you to come over and spend some time of fellowship with us. Those evening services will be carrying on uh, second and fourth Sunday of each month. We'll go right through, not to the end of December, because that would be Christmas Day, and I think you probably have other things you want to do on Christmas Day, which we understand, and we'll pick them up again in January and carry on. So, that's this evening. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 49, the Bible said, Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these things, these vain things, sorry, to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. For those of you here last night, we had a great evening of, uh, of time around the Word, and one of the, the guys who spoke is a fellow named Darren Middleton from North Geelong Presbyterian Church. And in my own studies this week, I've been wondering how I should present this text and what message God would give us from the text. The Lord laid on my heart a message about the gospel witness triumphing over opposition. And as Darren got up and he began to speak, I was just amazed. Because what God had given him to speak just dovetailed and flowed right up as a present, like an introduction to my message. So I'm thinking, this is awesome. God is giving us two sides or a continuing story from last night to this morning. So if you weren't here last night and you want to catch that message, you can go on the YouTube and the church Website, and you'll find them both listed there. But as we look at our world and what's going on, and we look through the church history, we see beatings and false arrest, and unjust imprisonment and torture and deprivation and community shaming and insult and abuse and offense and family rejection, honor killings, political and religious oppression, all of it against Christians for their faith, and the list goes on and on. What century am I describing? Well, every century, from the days of the first prophets in Israel to today, God's people, God's messengers have been opposed and persecuted. And Acts 13 and 14 are just really sample chapters in that long story. And the reality is that the devil hates the gospel And will bring constantly varying and unceasing opposition against it. So we must faithfully, diligently, strategically persist in our witness for Christ and the gospel. Knowing for a certainty, for a certainty, the triumph of the gospel over every opposition. Notice the reason for the opposition. God's gospel was making great progress. It had started centuries earlier with God's promise to Eve. It had been expanded and clarified in God's promises to Abraham, to Moses and David, and through the prophet's ministry. It had been realized in the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. It had started to be proclaimed in Galilee with Jesus preaching, repent and believe the gospel it had spread to Judea and Samaria and the coastlands under Peter it had spread to Africa through Philip and the Ethiopian it had been taken to Cyprus by Barnabas and Saul and now it was spreading to the Gentiles in southern Galatia and Paul cut or not Paul Luke gives us bookmarked statements in Acts that describe the progress and spread of the gospel to give Just a few examples. For example, in Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In Acts 6 and verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. And in Acts 12.24, the Bible says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And now here in our text, we see in Acts 13 and verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading through that region. In Acts 14, verse 1, we see a great number of Jews and Gentiles believe. And towards the end of the chapter, we see churches planted, and Paul and Barnabas going back to visit those churches and encourage and strengthen the disciples and the churches and plant or appoint elders and so on. And the devil hates the gospel and is determined to stop it which leads us to the source of these oppositions that are coming. In Acts 13 and verse 44, we see it's jealous Jews who incite women and men to to persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Religious jealousy drove the Jews to try and stop and crush the witness. In Acts 14 and verse 2, we see it's unbelieving, or more literally, it's disobedient Jews. Those who've had the truth but have turned away in total obedience and rejection of the truth will always hate it because it wounds their conscience. And rather than turn to God in repentance and renewed obedience to the truth, they strive to stamp it out. In Acts 14 and verse 5, Gentiles and Jews together against the gospel. Most of us have heard the phrase T4G Together for the gospel. Well, here we have T A G together against the gospel. And what I find amazing is that opposition to the gospel unites the strangest of bedfellows. Otherwise, bitter enemies united against a common enemy. In Jesus' own ministry, the liberal Sadducees and the extremely conservative Pharisees and the uh, what do you call them, the Herodians, all come together in their desire for one thing: get. Rid of Jesus. And here, Jews of the one true God and polytheistic pagan Gentiles come together in the desire to be rid of the gospel and its witnesses. But ultimately, the source of all opposition to the gospel comes from the oldest liar in creation, the devil and Satan. He has a long history of opposing God's people and purposes. In Job chapters 1 and 2, the oldest book in the Bible, Satan opposed Job. In 1 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to sin by numbering Israel. In Zechariah 3 and verse 1, Satan was standing at Joshua the high priest's right hand to accuse him. In Mark 4 verse 15, the Bible tells us in Jesus' words that the Satan comes immediately as the word is sown and takes away the word that is sown. He's acting in opposition against the gospel. So behind all the opposition brought by the Jews and Gentiles yesterday and today is the devil still unrelenting in his opposition to God's people and God's purposes. But this we must remember When it happens, and we look at the the newspapers and see all that happened in the last couple of days in this city, when we see that, we remember this, that Satan is a dog on the leash of God Almighty. He can go only as far as God allows him. Job's story in Job 1, verse 12, and Job 2, verse 6, very clearly displays that. And again, remember the great news of the gospel, The devil is defeated. The Bible says in Colossians 2.15 that he, that's Christ, disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In John 12.31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this devil be cast out. The ruler of this world, who is the devil, will be cast out. In Luke 10.18, Jesus is talking to the 72 that he sent out and they've come back and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Satan is certainly defeated. Satan is certainly limited by God's overriding control, but he's not yet bound. Listen to what the Bible says in Acts five and verse three. The Bible says that Satan entered the heart of Ananias to lie to the spirit, lie to the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 4, verse 27, Paul warns us not to give the devil an opportunity. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, what's the Bible tell us? Paul was hindered again and again by Satan. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, the Bible tells us Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is defeated. He's limited. not yet bound, but scripture promises even more in Romans 16 and verse 20 that God will soon crush Satan. So whatever persecution and opposition that we suffer has been permitted by God, but it cannot ever separate us from God. You go back to Romans 8 and that great, beautiful passage in verses 31 all the way down to 39. We see that nothing can separate us, not even persecution, not life, nor death. There are so many other things. So while the devil is defeated, absolutely, he is limited. He's not yet bound, but he will very soon be. And so we hold fast again to this great truth. Matthew 16 and verse 18, that on this rock, on Christ... He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ's life and death and resurrection has triumphed over the devil and defeated him. The gospel has already triumphed over all opposition. But notice the types of opposition that are here in our text. First of all, there is a political and religious opposition in verse 50 of chapter 13. The Jews, moved by the devil, stirred up persecution through devout religious women and leading Greek men. The devil moved them to uh, both political and religious opposition against those witnesses. Devout religious wealthy women comprised about 50% of the Jewish proselytes and about 80% of the god The Jewish synagogue leadership prompted by the devil to do so, incited those women who in turn moved the city's male Greek leadership against the Christians, which would have included the local government's highest representatives, so leading political people, and those men were tied very much to both the moon cult and the imperial cult. You see, what are those? Uh, Cults, pagan idolatry cults where they worship the moon and they also worship the emperor. So we see there, very clearly, there's both political and religious opposition. They have the most to lose as Jews and Gentiles trust in Christ. And brothers and sisters, the reality is, in every age, 1st century to 21st century, the enemy stirs up pressure from religious people and those of high social standing towards persecution. They have. And will continue to try and eliminate the church and force disciples to renounce beliefs. It's happening all over the world, and it happens in our city today. I was talking with Lee on the phone just before the rally last night. He told me that City on a Hill normally gets 200 phone calls a day. Right now, they're getting 50,000 from what's happened. There's pressure, huge pressure on them. It's happening all over the world. The devil emphasizes to religious people... When I say religious, I don't mean Christian. I mean false religions and pseudo-Christian religions. The devil emphasizes to religious people the danger and the losses that Christianity will inflict on their organization, their loss of control over those in their sway. The devil emphasizes the danger and the loss of control that leading political men may suffer if Christianity gets a foothold. He emphasizes... To the business world, the financial losses that will take place in the illicit entertainment industries if Christianity makes inroads into homes and families. Look through the history of the Great Awakening. Pubs, bars, brothels, shut down. No customers, no any, no money coming in, so they had to shut them down. Police uh, stations, police. Detachments in Ireland, in small towns, in Wales, in small towns, that literally had nothing to do because there was no crime going on because the Great Awakening had spread through those places and men and women were turning to Christ, being saved, and living godly lifestyles. And so all of a sudden those entertainment industries collapsed and the police had nothing to do. Oh, may God bring such a revival to our shores, hey? Wouldn't that be great? And so there's opposition raised. The devil stirs up religious political pressure. This week we've seen it. Leading political powers, putting pressure, persecution of a sort against a church who stands for biblical truth. But when this form of opposition comes, beloved, we have this great truth as our reassurance. Christ has won the victory. The gospel has already triumphed over all opposition. Secondly, we can see from our text in verse 2 of chapter 14, an angry opposition. Unbelieving Jews poisoned the Gentiles' minds against Paul and Barnabas. When it says unbelieving, the word is translated 13 times out of 14 occasions in the Bible as disobedient or disobeying. For some reason, my, my Bible has it as unbelieving. It's more than that. It's disobedient to the truth. By the way, just time out for a sec. Rejection of the gospel is not just choosing something else. It is disobedience to the word of God. You say, I want nothing to do with Christ. You're not just backing away. You are rejecting and disobeying God. Know that for a certainty. It's the truth of the Bible. And these disobedient Jews stir up, they arouse and excite anger. And literally what the idea is, they poison, meaning to embitter or anger those Gentiles. Their minds, their souls were angered and embittered against the Christians and their witness. These Jews, having disobeyed the gospel themselves, now at the enemy's prompting, stir up Gentile listeners against the gospel as well. And again, the reality is in any age first century or 21st century, and everyone between and the ones on to the future, the devil will strive to bring opposition against the gospel in the form of angry responses. We've all seen it. The enemy of our souls will try to emphasize the supposed unfairness, the exclusivity, the political incorrectness of the Christian message. Like there's only one God, which praise God there is that Christ came to save sinners. Praise God that Christ came to sinners because we're all sinners. There's only one hope of salvation. There is a hope of salvation. I'm not sure what they're getting upset about. There's, There's all these other philosophies will only lead to destruction. Well, the reality is it's true. If I watch Victor head off in his truck, heading down a road in which I know the bridge is out, and I know if he goes flying along at the usual speed that Victor drives, he's going to go off that broken, burnt-out bridge, and he's going to plummet to the bottom and die. If I say, well, you know, he's chosen a different road, it's okay. You know, I wouldn't be very loving to Victor, would I? No, i jump in front and say, stop! The road you're on leads to destruction. And so it's not unfair it's not politically incorrect. it's not exclusive to try and turn sinners and men and women away from destruction and to the only road that brings life and hope which is the gospel. The enemy will try to emphasize the supposed bigotry of Christianity towards those who openly practice what God describes as an abomination. But in truth, the gospel appeals to all mankind on the same basic, even fair agenda. God's saving grace to all sinners. Who's excluded? Nobody. Who needs to hear the gospel message? Everybody. I may not be a homosexual, but if I'm an unconfessed, unrepentant liar, I will go to hell just as surely. Right? Our sin separates us from God, whether it's one or billions, small or great. We're still separated from God. We all need to hear that gospel message. It's not bigotry. But even the face of angry opposition, again, we remember God and his gospel have triumphed over all God's enemies. And this opposition, like every other one, will ultimately fail. Thirdly, it's a deceptive opposition. Remember the story in verses 11 to 13, actually it's a bit more than that, from 8 all the way down to verse 17, sorry. While preaching the gospel, Paul sees a cripple with faith to believe and calls him to stand up right on his feet. God again testifies to the word of his grace by healing the man. Like, and the Lyconians knowing their own fa- pagan folklore. There was a story behind all this. It's kind of interesting to hear and you need to understand it. The La- I don't know how you say the name properly. Lycaonian. we'll use that. Uh, believed that Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods, had supposedly once before visited their area. And in the history of the story, they'd only been welcomed by one couple. So in retribution, Zeus and Hermes destroyed the region with a flood. So here the Lyconians are, they're seeing this man healed, and they suspect, "Uh uh-oh, Zeus and Hermes are back to test us, and so they react. They try to offer Paul and Barnabas sacrifices, and Paul and Barnabas immediately try to stop them. Now, in what's happening here, I think there's a very important lesson for us to learn. And I would argue that at this moment, the enemy used the fearful, ignorant reaction of the Lyconians to oppose the gospel in an entirely new and extremely dangerous way. His attempt is to draw Paul and Barnabas away and oppose their witness by appealing to their pride, by appealing with the promise of wealth and ease, by appealing to man's desire for power and control. And if Paul and Barnabas had allowed the Lyconians to do the sacrifice to them, they would have been set for life. But only this life, not the one after it. When the enemy cannot dissuade or hinder or stop faithful witnesses with harmful means, insults, offense, and violence, etc., he will often bring his most dangerous opposition against us, tempting us with the possibility of power, of pleasure, of fame, and of fortune. The history of the church in the Western world is one of repeated failure to this particular opposition. Uh Some of you may have seen a documentary put out by Paul Washtenfield. It's called American Gospel. Is that it? The name of it? Yeah. American Gospel. And they describe some of the health and wealth prosperity gospel teaches in America. And they give you video shots of where they live and how they live. It, it, It makes you want to vomit. At the same time, I feel terribly sad for those men because they bought a lie. They've been deceived and twisted and dragged away by the promise of power and pleasure and fame and fortune. Brothers and sisters, beware the terrible danger of the most subtle opposition the enemy brings against us to give us all that our flesh could desire to draw us away from preaching the gospel. The enemy of our soul hates the spread of the gospel in the church. He will do all he can to hinder and slow and stop it. But God and his gospel have already triumphed over the enemy. That's the truth we hold on to. So just how is the gospel triumphed? Well, Christ's accepted offering of himself is our guarantee of forgiveness Forgiveness of sins that we have committed against God. It's a guarantee of a full and final salvation from God's wrath against us, of a finished sanctification, of persevering to the very end. Christ has ascended and is enthroned on his father's throne. And Christ is coming again to rule and reign in his earthly kingdom. And Christ has defeated sin and death. They've been stripped of their power over us. And Christ has defeated the devil. He knows it, by the way. He had no doubts about what his future is. But he's still trying everything and the most futile attempt, and he's unrelenting in his attempts to stop the gospel. But brothers and sisters, knowing Christ's victory enables us to endure futile and failed opposition. We know the opposition cannot last forever, for Christ is surely returning. We know that as painful as opposition might become it's nothing compared to the unceasing endurance of hell one of the english reformers on his way to being burned to stake in the early days of the english reformation said he'd far rather endure one hell of sorry rather endure one hour i'm still stumbling over it, rather endure one hour of hell on a stake than eternity in hell That never ended. Listen, we know that as painful as opposition might become, it's nothing compared to the unceasing endurance of hell. And it's going to end because Christ is returning and no opposition can separate us from God's love in Christ. Whatever we endure, we endure it for the short term. Eternity is so much longer and so much greater. So notice next from the passage, the way these two presented their witness. Remember this, aside from their role as first century apostles, they're no different to us. They have the same problems and struggles and difficulties that we have. We're men just like they are. Women just like, well, not women apostles, but men and women as they were, we are today. So, first of all, despite the opposition, Paul and Barnabas continued their witness They perhaps remembered Jesus' words as we should. In Luke 6 and verse 22 and verse 23, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did persecute the prophets. Matthew 10, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So what kind of witness did Paul and Barnabas present? And I would argue from verse 51, it was uh, 51 of chapter 13. It's a separated witness. Let's read those verses again. Verses 50 and 51, it says, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. What in the world does that mean? They shook off the dust from their feet. Paul and Barnabas began their witness in that town in the synagogue of the Jews. And it's reasonable to assume that the Jews had never heard the gospel before Paul and Barnabas got there. News didn't travel like it does today. And they, in their worship, were worshiping to the best of their understanding, according to the latest revelation they had from God. And Paul stood up. And we looked the last couple of weeks about his first recorded gospel sermon, calling them to believe in Christ for salvation, giving them, promising them forgiveness and justification. And as we saw last week, they clearly wanted nothing to do with it. And now later, as the jealous Jews have rejected and turned completely against the gospel, as Paul and Barnabas are leaving, they shake the dust off their feet. The jealous Jews on the other side of the story, are no longer living and acting as faithful Jews. They're living and acting rather as apostate Jews. The Jews have gone from being Paul and Barnabas' brothers, which they call them that back in verse 15 of chapter 13, to being the enemies of Christ. They're the enemies of the cross and the enemies of the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas' action of shaking the dust off their feet was a symbolic gesture to display to the Jews they did not wish to be defiled by any association with them, even the dust that came from their synagogues and their town. They do not wish to be defiled. The Jews have separated themselves from God and rejected Him, and so Paul and Barnabas separate themselves from Pisidian Antioch Jews. That's a very strong, it was a powerful moment when they stood there and just shook the dust off their feet before they left. There's a very important lesson for us to learn here. Brothers and sisters, we cannot share our witness and our evangelistic efforts with those who do not hold the same biblical faith and gospel as we do. We cannot join forces with those of pseudo-Christian faiths. Even those Christian groups that have departed, that once held the truth but now departed from it because some of their foundational beliefs are just wrong. I'm sorry, I'm going to just choose one because it's, it's easy and it's historic. We do not join forces with those of the Roman Catholic faith. You say, why? Oh, come on. That's separatism, isn't it? That's a little extreme, isn't it? Are you serious? What's wrong with that? Justification... By impartation of righteousness is the Catholic faith. The veneration of Mary, praying to and through the saints. Fundamentally, the Roman Catholic faith is a gospel of works. It's not a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and so on. Their faith is fundamentally different to what the Bible teaches. We believe, on the basis of Scripture, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to God's glory alone. You say, seriously? Does it really matter? Yeah, absolutely it matters. It is the difference between salvation and damnation. We cannot and we must not join forces with those who hold aberrant beliefs and truths. If you hear here last night, you'd remember that admonition we got, by the truth. Paul described the church of the living God as the pillar and buttress of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul and Barnabas exercised a separated witness. They separated themselves from those who claimed to belong to God, but had in fact rejected and denied God's only Son, God's witness, and God's gospel. Paul and Barnabas' action had an added meaning of judgment against the Jews. They were communicating to the Jews that they were now under God's judgment for disobedient disbelief to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, our witness must be a separated witness. We don't join forces with those who claim to belong to Christ all the while denying the fundamental foundational doctrines of the faith. But praise God, we do join forces with those who do subscribe to those same fundamentals. And, you know, we might differ on some of the unfundamentals, I'll call that, or the not so fundamental parts of it. We might have some difference there, but when we have agreement and, and fellowship around the salvation truths of the gospel, we have fellowship. We can join forces with those and present a gospel because we're presenting the same basic message to all who will hear it. But it's not a religious, stiff, separated like that. It's also a very loving witness. We just talked in verse uh, 50 and 51 about them separating from the Jews. But Paul and Barnabas, in verse 1 of chapter 14, what's the first thing they do? After shaking the dust off their feet, notice as they arrive in the next city, where do they go? Right back into the synagogue. Now, if, if I was them, and they were doing all kinds of nasty things to me, I'd be thinking, you know, maybe a synagogue witness isn't the best place to start. Let's try somewhere else, and maybe not have opposition like that. And we go somewhere else. No. They go right back to the synagogue. Paul and Barnabas were not saying that all Jews were apostate. They were saying those who hear the gospel and knowing the Old Testament scriptures and still reject it, those are apostate. But what we see here in their actions is love. It's a huge amount of love. These two witnesses, being Jews, raised in the synagogues, under the law, knowing the covenants and promises of God, they loved the Jews and desired for their salvation. Having experienced the persecution they'd already experienced, it would have been entirely natural for them to go somewhere else, yet to the synagogue they go. Notice they go in together. There was a fellowship, a support, a unity in their witness as they both go into the synagogue to make a witness for Christ in the gospel. There was love for the Jews to see them saved. We see that same love expressed by Paul in Romans 9. Listen to what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. It goes a bit later. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, their Israelites. What's Paul saying? It's like Moses up on the mountain Lord, curse me. Lord, do away with me, but save your people. Paul's saying, Listen, I love them so much. I want to see them saved so much. I'm willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ if God would save my brothers and sisters, who are the Jews. That's love, brothers and sisters. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your enemies and hate your en- sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Should we pray for Daniel Andrews? Absolutely. Should we pray for those who are persecuting Christians in far off places? Absolutely. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, if if he saved you, he can certainly save them. We're no better. Right? Right? They loved them, and they went in there. And brothers and sisters, the question that crosses my heart as we go out to witness for the gospel, do we love those that we're talking to? Before you quickly go, oh, yeah, 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 of course. Stop and think about it. Not only that, in verse 1, thirdly, theirs was a compelling witness. In chapter 14 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Paul and Barnabas witnessed in such a way, such a compelling way, that many believed the message. So what made their witness a compelling witness? Well, it doesn't give any main details, but you can see from the other scriptures, from Romans and 1 Corinthians, as Paul wrote about his witness and wrote the content of his gospel, we can see what he would have done, how he would have behaved. A compelling witness is, first of all, a biblical witness. Paul would have presented the same gospel he wrote and explained specifically in Romans. In Romans 1, Paul would have preached the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and are without excuse. Brothers and sisters of Christ, if we don't talk about the wrath of God, what are we offering salvation from? You say, oh, but from sin and bad habits and all those things. That's true. But let's face it, bad habits and issues and problems in this life is nothing compared to the wrath of God which is coming his message would have contained excuse me contained a message about the wrath of god from romans 2 paul would have preached that all men jew and gentile male and female old, the whole world alike are sinners before god and we have no hope apart from the grace of god in sending christ from romans 3 paul would have preached that men are justified and saved and our salvation is in romans 324 by god's grace in Romans 3.22, through faith and in Christ. In Romans 3.21, that, that gospel message is witnessed and according to the Old Testament Scriptures, the law and the prophets. In Romans eleven thirty six, it was to Him be the glory. The gospel is preached to the glory of God. I hope you picked that up. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It's all in Romans 3. Paul would have preached that gospel. And brothers and sisters, as we go out with the message, here's the question for us. Does our witness declare the full message of the gospel? I was talking to Reverend uh, Middleton, Darren Middleton, last night, and he said one of the problems they're struggling with, especially in young, zealous evangelists out in Geelong where they work, is they're going out and they're leaving out things like sin and wrath and death. And talking about how the gospel can give you a great new life. Well, strictly speaking, the gospel will give you a great new life. I, I'm not debating that for a second. But compare to what? And save from what? If we're not saved from the wrath of God, it's just a nice life for this life. And trust me, if your best life is today, then you've really lost out because your best life is for <laughs> some of you got that. The best life is to come, right? absolutely their compelling witness was a full declaration of the message of the gospel brothers and sisters when we go out do we declare the whole truth uh paul washer told us in the evangelism seminar i did with him he said when you sit down with someone and tell them the gospel you may as tell them the whole thing warts and all because you get one chance And if god His spirit isn't working they're not going to believe it anyway but if god's spirit's working they need to hear the whole thing so they understand what they're believing Nextly, the, their compelling witness would have been a spirit-filled witness. From 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we can see there as Paul describes his ministry, they would have preached Christ and Him crucified, the stumbling block of the cross to the Jews and the foolishness of the cross to the Greeks and the Gentiles. Their demonstration of the Spirit and of power is declaring the Word of God to the people of God in such a way that Jews despite the stumbling block of the cross, and Gentiles, despite the foolishness of the cross, were being saved, not by persuasive words of man's wisdom, but by the work of the Spirit of God. Because it's God's Spirit that awakens us. It's God's Spirit that helps us to understand the reality of the gospel. It's God's Spirit that gives us the faith and calls us to believe and draws us to Christ. Their witness. Was a spirit-filled witness? And brothers and sisters, the question comes back to us. Is our witness a spirit-filled witness to those outside the faith? Are we resting in all kinds of devices and programs and schemes of men and women? Because that's not what it's about. It's about the spirit of God working. But there's something else here. In 1 Corinthians 2, we can see from Paul's description there, the compelling witness is also a very humble witness paul would have preached and witnessed and ministered without lofty speech or man's wisdom he stood there in weakness in fear in much trembling in plausible not in plausible words of wisdom but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power he didn't get up as a great orator and preach away He stood up and he quietly and gently and with a persuasion of the Spirit of God's working in his life and his message, he proclaimed the gospel and they believed. I'll give you an example. Um, This is not me at all. Uh, I heard a story from um, one of my friends back in the Brethren churches in Canada and he said that he went to a a service and he had been witnessing to this fellow at work for weeks on end. And the guy finally reluctantly agreed to come to a church service with him. And he got there, and my friend got him down the front, and they all. Sit there, and he's just praying, Lord, please let it be a powerful gospel message tonight. And the fella got up, and he opened his Bible, and he preached a sermon on the begats of Scripture. You know what the begats of Scripture are? And Abraham begat Jacob and Jacob begat you know, and so on. well, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob and so on, right? And this guy's there going, No, 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 no. This is not the right message. Come on, man. And he's pleading with the Lord that the Lord will change this preacher's mind halfway through his message. You'll flip to John 316 and just preach that. And on the way home, you know what happened? His friend says, I trusted Christ as my savior tonight. And and the brethren fell almost drove off the road. What what were you talking about? He said, you know, it just hit me as he's talking about the begats and -and so-and-so begat and -and so-and-so begat and -and so-and-so begat. He said, all I could think about as he was talking was time is moving on. Life in those sentences was three words. Life is short. And everything you told me about Jesus and the gospel came flooding back to me as I heard him go through all those little lives stories. And I suddenly realized my life is about to be over. And if I don't trust Christ, I'll go to hell. It's as simple as that. And he said, So I bowed my head while you guys were listening to the Bagats and I prayed and asked Jesus into my life. He was saved. It's not about persuasive preaching. It's not that we shouldn't preach persuasively. I think we should. But that's not the power of it. It's the power of the Spirit of God at work. It was a humble witness that they offered. Brothers and sisters, to wrap all this up, opposition has come. It will continually come with increasing intensity in our world. We can see it already. The storm clouds of persecution are building on the far side of the city, and they're coming this way. And we will be under it before we know it. Our opposer beyond the human face we see is ultimately the devil. He has been defeated for eternity at the cross. He is limited but not yet bound, and God will soon crush him completely. The gospel has triumphed triumphed over Satan and his opposition. And brothers and sisters, our witness declares that triumph. And our witness displays that triumph as it's presented in the power of the Spirit of God, in biblical truth and humility. Our witness must be separated, but loving and compelling. It must be a compelling witness that presents the truth of the gospel, the whole, complete, unvarnished truth of the gospel. It must be in the power of the Spirit of God, both in our witness and in their conversion. And it must be presented by humble, God-depending witnesses. If, who here feels shy and nervous about evangelization? Just so you know. <laughs> Good on you. I do. I, I, I got all the power and thunder I want standing in a room full of Christians in front of a Bible and all the rest of it. I go out there. I get nervous. I, I won't deny it. And it takes me all of my size or whatever, and all that's in me, to go up and say, excuse me, can I tear the gospel of you? If that's how you feel, don't don't be afraid. If that's how you feel, don't be ashamed either. Uh, I know some of you, I can think of one in particular, who will go out and stand up on a soapbox and thunder away the gospel. That's a gift of God to do that. I'd love to be able to do that. But you know what? Our message is not presented in persuasive. We're not We're not presenting a message to compete with Coke ads or Pepsi ads or Reebok or anything like that. We're not presenting a message that's supposed to compete with the political messages on our TVs and all that stuff. We present a message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit of God, a complete biblical message, and we do it, as Paul says, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Because when they believe... It's not based on our persuasion, but they're believing in the promises of God. Their belief is in the power of God to save, not the effective arguments of a man. Right? That's the truth of it. Well, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the second part of this and see the gospel witness triumphing over the worst opposition As Paul suffers being stoned, and we're going to see the triumph as churches are planted, disciples are made, churches planted, elders appointed, and an account is given. Brothers and sisters, the gospel has triumphed. We're on the winning side. Did you know that? Absolutely. The question is, brothers and sisters, are we willing to go out there, even in weirdness, fear, and trembling, and present the message? and trust God to do the work to save sinners. If you want to, I encourage you with all my heart, come out next Saturday and meet up here at 10 o'clock, and we'll take Bibles, and we'll take gospel tracts, and we'll go down to Noble Park, and we'll just hand out gospel tracts and get people involved in a conversation. Okay? Let's pray, and then we'll sing one last song. Would you stand with me, sorry, as we pray together? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we stand before you as a company of saved sinners. Father, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for the great hope that we have because of the gospel. And Father, we hold on to that hope, for it gives us courage to go and to share, to open our mouths and talk to people and engage in a conversation. Father, we pray. For all of us as a church. We see the opposition that was brought against the apostles. We recognize that opposition is being brought against us. And it's increasing in its intensity. Father I pray. I plead with you O Lord God. That all of us would do nothing to bring shame to the name of Christ. But Father even in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We would go out. And we would present the gospel message to those who need to hear it desperately. Father, we ask you for help. We plead with you, O God, for a work of your spirit amongst all of us. We give thanks, O God, for this time together to worship in the word. And we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.